This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. This is the Decibel Geek Podcast with Aaron Camaro and Chris Sinzak. Y'all down with this? We're going to try to liven it up. We know how it is. You're listening to the Decibel Geek Podcast, probably at work, maybe on your way to work. Everybody's looking tired. No surprises. We tired of that. We need something different, something new. We need to shock the people. I'm Aaron Camaro. That's Chris Sinzak. Are you ready to shock the people? You look like Tupac today. What happened? What up, homie? What's going on? I got all my homies with me. Welcome to the Decibel Geek Podcast and the world that is 1996. (laughs) And a Kiss reference right off the top. Right off the top, man. (laughs) Well, yeah, for those of you that are Kiss fans, we don't have to explain why this is an important year. Oh, yeah. We're going to have a lot of fun with this one. It's been a long time since we've done a year in review. We mm-hmm. decided to pick a weird year because we're always picking cool years like the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. But the 90s often gets overlooked. Mm-hmm. And 1996 was kind of a tough year. But there are some gems, and we're going to cover it all here today. Yeah, you're going to hear a wide variety of stuff today. and. From basically, you know, we hit rock, we do rock and metal. We're gonna, you're gonna hear all facets of rock and metal today, for sure. But before we get to that, we got to take care of some business. And my favorite way to start the Decibel Geek podcast is with a sweet five star review. Doesn't matter if it comes from iTunes or Facebook, we appreciate them all the same. This one in particular comes to us from Facebook, and it's from Mike Parnell. And it goes a little something like this. Just subscribed a couple of weeks ago. Really good show. I'm hearing songs I've never heard before, and I consider myself a hard rock guru. Thanks, guys. Amazing stuff. Awesome. Sweet to the point. Like it. New listener right on board. This guy's going to get to enjoy all kinds of great stuff in the archives over the last many, many years. Yeah, just go to decibelgeek.com and click on the episodes tab and... uh, there's over 300 hours of things for you to listen to right there. It's all there, including last week's episode with Perry Richardson. Yeah. Six songs. Man, that was great. It was good. It turned out good, and uh, we had a great response from it. Perry had a good time on the show. Uh, Striper even you know, retweeted and, re- and shared it on their Facebook. Right on. And uh, I was talking to a friend, and I said, thank God, pun intended. Yeah, right. um, yeah but, sure. But, uh, yeah, it was cool, and... 
one of that probably I'd say that's definitely our most popular six songs that we've done. Right on. Well, next to the Ian Wadley one, of course. Of course. Yeah. Of course. But uh, yeah, it was great having Perry on, and uh, Striper started to release dates now for next year. Nothing in Nashville yet, but we have uh, we have hope that it's. We got our fingers crossed. I'm sure wherever you live, you got your fingers crossed for it too. Yeah. So when they do come around, make sure to get out there, support them, say hi to Perry. Yeah, please do. Uh, for Geeks of the Week, these are the people that shared on Facebook and retweeted on Twitter last week's six songs Perry Richardson thinks you should hear. Geeks of the Week this week are Joe Royland, Adam Cox, Matt Ashcraft, Tony Musalam from Restrain, Todd Cunningham, Kevin Williams, Joshua Toomey from Talk To Me Podcast, Jeff Rich, Perry Richardson himself shared it. Alan Tate from the Ages of Rock podcast. I want to congrat, congratulate Alan and his co-hosts on 100 episodes. I nice. just passed that. That's awesome. Baco from Cobras and Fire, James Bennett, Brennan Barrier, Jeffrey Mendenhall, Mikhail Burrell, Wayne Cross, Joseph Capone, Mark Alden-Taylor, Sean Cullen, Greg McGlone, Christina Green, Forgotten Rock Community, Mackenzie Goleg... I can't even pronounce it. You should one. be able to pronounce that one. It's, your, it's like your cousin. Uh, Garen Smith Music, Aaron Baker, Rob Webb, Jerry Ritz, Covers and Fire Podcast, Freeform Rock Podcast, Dan Shapu, Sit and Spin with Joe, Growing Up Rock Podcast, Chrissy Kissy Groove, Sonny Hollywood Pooney, Jay Shablewski. See, I, got, I can get Shablewski. <laughs> Plenty uh, of practice. So if Mackenzie, keep sharing the show and I'll get better with your name as uh-huh. time goes on. Andrew Jacobs, Bradley Bowermaster, Save Rock and Metal. That's a really cool Twitter profile that came up and they share a lot of rock podcasts. So I yeah, want to right give on. them a shout out. Stephen Michael, Ernesto Aguiar, JJ Matt, Christopher Stokes, Derek Novak, and of course... The, the Mooger Fooger. You know, we mentioned one name in there, Baco, man. He's been killing it at decibelgeek.com, yeah. man, putting out some amazing articles, some really cool cutting-edge stuff. Yeah, we're, uh, we're, we're putting more news items out now. That's and, cool. I uh, see it all over the place. It's getting a lot of uh, attention, especially, well, the new uh, – well, maybe when we're done tonight, we'll do a uh, – VIP uh, uh-huh, segment about Gene, sure. the new Gene Simmons story that just came Guys, out. We just got done talking about Gene Simmons, and bam, here's some more. Yeah. It's crazy. So join the uh, VIP thing on Patreon and uh, keep your eyes on decibelgeek.com. Yeah. And check out Cobras and Fire. Yeah, great show. I've, I listen to those guys every week. So uh, we're All ready right. to get into so 1996. 1996. Now, I think this should come with a little disclaimer. I mean, do you got your, your facts for the year? Yeah, a few. Okay. I've got not a lot, but a okay. Few. The, but the pertinent ones that we like yeah. to start our year in review with. I mean, that's where we got to start. Yeah, you want to start with that? Yeah. Well, first off, I, how old were you in 1996? Let's see, 1996, 1920ish, around in there. I was 19, gonna, and I turned 20 in November of yeah. that year. I think you're about a year older than me, right? I turned. Well, I guess I turned in May. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, okay. So that gives you an idea where we were. Personally. Right. Uh, 1996 facts. Average monthly rent was $554. That would nice. be nice. That, I remember that. That's the cost of a, a month's rent of a closet in downtown Nashville now. Right. Cost of a gallon of gas was $1.22. U.S. postage stamp was $0.32. Cents. We don't even use those anymore. Not really. And the price of a pound of bacon was $2.90. That's the most important thing we always got to know at the beginning of our year in yeah. reviews. I actually dig a little harder to find the price of bacon for 1996. Really? Yeah, it wasn't readily available. That's weird. Even to calculate some stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get into the world of 1996, I think this should come with a little bit of disclaimer because you know, in the in the 70s we had you know the kids and Satan service, and in yeah. the 80s we had the evil powers of metal and Ozzy Osbourne and Judas Priest controlling our weak minds and getting us to do things we wouldn't do. The 90s are no different. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you about the evils of alternative rock. Okay. 
For example, in early 96, two Washington State teenagers are charged in a triple murder when they team up to kill one of their own families. When asked why they did it, they blamed the murderous influence of the most demonic band of the mid-90s, Silverchair. For real? For real. Specifically, the lyrics of the song, Israel's Son. The court would exonerate Silverchair... And the band would condemn the actions of the young murderers, but welcome to 1996 and the evil powers of alternative rock. Could we prosecute them for shit taste in music? <laughs> I didn't ever like Silverchair. They're all right. Nah. They ain't so bad. Can I um, share a couple of odd stories I found on a website? Sure. This is bizarre. Um, first one, Mary Tyler Moore. You're familiar with sure. her. She offered a restaurant $1,000 to sell her, sell her a 65-year-old lobster so she could return it to the wild. It was 65 years old, must still been alive then, right? Yeah. Huge, I would imagine. Rush Limbaugh then offered $2,000 to eat the lobster. What? <laughs> the restaurant denied both officers and kept it as a mascot. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. And the next story. People with nothing better to do in 96. Yeah. During a blizzard in Allentown, Pennsylvania, the Orlando Magic, Marilyn Manson, and the cast of Sesame Street Live were all stranded in a hotel together. Oh, wow. We got to get Marilyn Manson on the show and ask him about that. Man, I'm just I'm imagining a Marilyn Manson with Sesame Street mashup. <laughs> that would be awesome. I just think Marilyn Manson probably hiding out in the deepest, darkest bowels of the building. Right. Yeah. Oh, and then one more. I think I mentioned it to you. I didn't put it on the notes, but... Um, in New Zealand, a guy broke into a radio station and held the DJ hostage, forcing him to play um, Rainbow Connection by Kermit the Frog on repeat. Wow. Not nothing metal. Not no. nothing cool. Kermit the Frog. Rainbow Connection. Insane. Yep. So 1996 was a strange time. Sure was. Let's get into the rock and roll. If we're going to talk about anything, you know this is Decibel Geek. You know we're doing a year in review. Mm. So we're going to take it through the eyes of hard rock and classic metal, and this is a great place to start. I'm talking about Except. Their 11th studio album, Predator. It's produced by Michael Wagner at Sound Studios right here in Nashville, Tennessee. And, you know, it's 1996, so it's been 12 years since Balls to the Wall, and Except has gone through a lot since then. In 1987, Udo Dirkschneider left the band to start a solo career, and Except would release one album, Eat the Heat, with a different singer, like and that. Udo would release four studio albums before getting the band back together in 93. Mm-hmm. They're on a roll through the mid-90s, creating some really, really great music, and 1996's Predator is no... Exception. <laughs> Great songs like Crucified, Ain't Over Yet, Predator, and Digging in the Dirt. Wait a minute, 
it a lot i was depressed that it wasn't a cover of the peter gabriel song oh yeah right yeah. sure you know the production is obviously top notch every instrument and voice is so crisp and clear and powerful peter baltus even sings lead vocals on three of the tracks and mm-hmm. i don't think that guy gets his due for his singing ability i like because the songs on here are pretty kick-ass they didn't know it at the time but this would be the last except album for almost 15 years and the last to feature udo on vocals ever It did not chart in the U.K. or in the U.S., but was highly acclaimed in Northern Europe and in Japan, Hmm. except 96. That album completely went over my head at the time. Obviously, it went over everybody. I don't even remember when it, it, it coming out or anything. Yeah, no, me neither. Interesting. That's one of them good ones in retrospect. Yeah. So here's something cool also that happened in 96. In an attempt to earn the 1996 Humanitarian Award... The authorities fire several shots at Jimmy Buffett's plane after it lands in Jamaica. It's got Jimmy Buffett and Bono from U2 on board. Actually, what it was, they thought the plane belonged to wanted drug smugglers, and it nearly cost Bono and his family their lives. Yikes. For real. It, I, was, I really, it was crazy. I really want to make a joke right now, but probably shouldn't. Right. Uh, it's funny in retrospect, yeah. but at the time, I'm sure it was terrible. So uh, in January on the 25th, Mr. Big put out the Hey Man album. Well, it came out in Japan in January, which is their, we might as well call that their home turf because they were bigger in Japan than they ever were here. This is going to be a reoccurring theme in 96. A lot of these bands are doing really good in like other countries, like Northern yeah. Europe and in, you know, Sweden and Norway and Germany and places like that, but especially Japan. Yeah. A lot of the bands that had seen the downfall when grunge kind of rose in the early 90s are still killing it in japan yeah and this was their fourth studio album the last one they did with paul gilbert until 2010 because uh richie Cotson came on board after that it was produced by kevin elson mixed by tom size which i always thought was funny that a guy named tom size worked on the mr big albums um <laughs> it's meant to be this album didn't yield any radio hits but it's filled with the requisite hooks chops and soulful vocals you'd expect from a mr big album right on. tracks that stand out for me are trapped in toyland the chain and where do i fit in
Mr. Big uh, rolls on to this day, even though they, yeah. were, they were not around for a while there. You know, it's good, you know. Huge stuff in Japan going on in 96. Not so much the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, also in the news in early 96, not to be outdone by Jamaica. <laughs> Argentina wants to kill Madonna. Gosh. They are not amused by a notorious American slut's portrayal of their icon, their cultural icon, Eva Peron. Oh, the don't cry for me Argentina thing. Indeed. Oh, okay. Yeah. They were mad. I didn't know they were upset about that. Like, seriously mad. They didn't want her to come there. They didn't want nothing to do with her. Huh. So get your skank ass out of here. Wow, man. Well, a lot of harsh words from Madonna here. Yeah, What's they didn't like on? it. Wow. Okay. Hey, I'm not. Don't don't cry for me. Well, you called her I didn't say iconic it. American slut. Well, I mean, back then, isn't that what she was kind of known not as? A slut. She was totally but, wholesome. What are you talking oh, about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> she only had a book called Sex <laughs> with naked ass pictures in it. That was probably not too long before this. I've seen that book. I read it for the articles, though. I bet you did. Yeah. In the mid-80s, the classic Mark II lineup of Deep Purple reunited to great response. But before the end of the 80s, Gillen and Blackmore were getting along about as well as ever, and Gillen is fired and replaced by Lynn Turner. Mm. In the mid-90s, with pressure from the record company, Turner was let go and Gillen was brought back for the band's 25th anniversary. Again, Gillen and Blackmore, they just can't coexist. But this time, Blackmore's the one who walks. When Steve Morris is recruited to take the place of Blackmore, the band feels rejuvenated, and they enter the studio in Altamont, Florida, to record Perpendicular. Perpendicular does not crack the U.S. album charts at all. That's crazy. It sucks. But it does really well, like I said, in Europe and, of course, Japan. And with the exception of Don Airy, who replaced John Lord in 2002, this is the lineup that has lasted to this very day. Yeah, and I I love the sound of that album. I think it's produced well. I yeah. think it, it sounds like a classic Deep Purple record. I mean, it's... There's the but then again, you know, were people clamoring for a classic sounding Deep Purple album in 1996? No, you no know? definitely not. Not here. Not in the states. Not really. And um, well, here's something completely different. Uh, Bruce Dickinson puts out a, a, a solo album in uh, 1996. I'm using quotes when I say solo album. Yeah. Skunk Works came out on February 19th. Originally, it was intended for it to be a, the debut album of a band by that name. And Skunk Works is like a military term. Okay. Like military intelligence, I think. Um, however, the label, much like with Tony Iommi in the '80s, would not allow him to record under any other name than Bruce Dickinson. Like they, they're, they're, you have the marquee value of your right. name, so you're going to be Bruce. 
And because um, it was big news when he left Maiden, you know, so people yeah. wanted to know what he was up to. If you just call it Skunk Works, yeah, and it's uh, considered a stabbed as an alternative album. Uh, and that that is backed up by the choice of Jack and Dino for the producer. He did Nirvana's first album. Now there's the evil powers of alternative right. rock. <laughs> uh, highlights on Skunk Works include Inertia, Dream State, and Back from the Edge. alternative thing got labeled on this album but i think that's selling it short i mean it's even if that's what they were going for i think it's a really well done album and it's got a lot of good playing on it and that's the song that i just spun i think has a real rush vibe to it i don't i don't really it sounds more like rush than it does nirvana there's a lot of cool stuff going on in 96 with these classic era bands kind of experimenting and Mm -hmm. trying new things because I mean, who they got to impress in '96? Yeah, but I mean, this album and "Tattooed Millionaire." I like I like Bruce's solo material yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. And I think he just put out like a box set from the Skunk Works stuff. All right, on you know '96 is a great time for rock if you're the Goo Goo Dolls, Dishwalla, or Collective Soul. Yeah, but for a band like Enough's Enough, the landscape appears quite differently. Now, just three years prior, they'd been personally signed by Clive Davis to Arista Records. But after the Animals with Human Intelligence album failed to chart in anywhere but Japan, they were quickly dropped. Derek Frigo and Vic Fox would both leave the band, but Chip and Donnie kept it going, releasing independent albums and touring almost endlessly. They're in this kind of crazy limbo where they're not popular enough to be considered a high-drawing act. But yet they're so popular that it necessitates that they continue to release new music and tour. That's something that Chip and Donnie have no problem with because they have millions of great songs. So much so that throughout the 90s, they would release full albums of bonus material in between the releases of new music, including 1996's Peach Fuzz. Originally released only in Japan, popularity for the import warranted a U.S. release via Caroline Records, which had become the label responsible for launching White Zombie, Hole, and the Smashing Pumpkins. 
Peach Fuzz is made up of mostly extra songs from 93's Animals album, as well as one of their most well-known songs and possibly the greatest Christmas carol of all time, Happy Holiday, which was written but never used for the soundtrack of the 1992 movie Home Alone 2. I didn't know that. Yeah. Great song. Peach Fuzz also includes two songs that were on the 1991 Mother's Eyes single B-side tracks on the UK version, Let It Go and Kitty. Except Japan, <laughs> where it reached number 78 on the Oricon charts. Still to this day, Enough's Enough albums chart nowhere Yeah, but Japan, where they always crack the top 200. Compilation album or not, Chip and Donnie wrote thousands of great songs. And the Peach Fuzz album's got a lot of good stuff on it. Really good know, stuff. It's, I don't know. There's If you're not, if you're into like power pop rock at all, then... Uh, and you haven't li- really dug into Enough's Enough's catalog, then there's a treasure trove of stuff. For I you love it. Too. I own everything by the band that I can get my hands on. I yeah. love it. Man, definitely one of our most interesting interviews with Donnie V there. For sure. And Chip's coming to town in That's uh, right. 2018. So Yeah, so keep your guys open be- on that. We're going to be going to that for sure. So yeah. if you guys are in town, uh, check out decibelgeek.com. Yeah, we'll, we'll get the information we'll out, there. out there. Yeah, I'm hoping that we can uh, get Chip for an hour and talk to him about you know his side of everything yeah um okay chip saint chocolate oh boy yeah that's gonna be the first question (laughs) (laughs) so awesome oh man um so then you know i said we were going to span you know all all parts of the rock genre in here and this is going to prove that um bad religion put out the gray race on february 27th uh you i think i've played a little bit of bad religion on the show before uh you know i don't play a lot of punk on the show because we tend to hold and stay to hard rock but this band is this is like there wouldn't be a Green Day without a Bad Religion, and then, like there wouldn't have been a Rancid without a Bad Religion. This band oh, been around. Thanks a lot. Well, yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe I'm not selling them the right way here. I'm just saying they were they were kind of criminally underrated when it comes to like power pop punk. You know, they're not just angry. They're actually there's melody to their music, and I and I got into them around this time. Uh, they put out the Gray Race, which was their night studio album. It's the follow up to '94 Stranger Than Fiction, which is where I came on board as a fan. This album was recorded at Electric Lady Studios and and uh, produced by Rick Ocasek from The Cars. Oh, wow. Only one song that did much on the charts from this one was Walk, but my favorite track on this one is called Empty Causes. <laughs>
Bad Religion is still around and still doing their thing. Uh, I'd love to see them live once, but I don't. I don't know that they've ever played Nashville. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. So you're going to find out in 1996 that there are a lot of top record companies dropping the rock acts in favor of alternative and hip-hop artists in the early 90s. Um, one label that emerges in the early 90s, it's a new record company called CMC International. Yep. They emerge as a new home for rock and metal artists. They pick up many bands that have recently been dropped by major labels but refuse to die, including Wasp, Judas Priest, Vixen, Slaughter, Motorhead, Saxon, Warrant, Kicks. The list goes on and on. These guys were on the case. After getting the boot from Atlantic, Tom Lipsky and CMC were more than happy to go into business with Overkill. And that wasn't the only major transition going on in the world of Overkill, because along with the loss of major label support, they also lost their longtime twin guitar attack of Merritt Gant and Rob Canavino. In their place, they hire Sebastian Marino, who played on the Anvil album Worth the Wait, and Joe Como, who's former lead vocalist of a Priest tribute band that turns into kind of legendary thrash guys like deep underground. You ever heard of Liege Lord? Mm-mm. A lot of our favorite thrash metal bands love Liege Lord. Huh. He's also a guitar player, but he adds a whole new vocal dynamic along with Blitz and Dee Dee for the 1996 album The Killing Kind. Now, being off a major label, I'm guessing it must have made them feel like they could experiment with their sound. And boy, did they ever. that this is Overkill's music from the Elder. Oh, really? Yeah, it's very divisive amongst uh, hardcore fans. Well, that song in particular, though, that follows kind of falls in line with what you... It does, but there's some odd stuff on there. I mean, it, it doesn't chart anywhere except for Germany, and uh, it's definitely a different kind of Overkill album. I dig it myself. I think it's pretty good. There's some cool stuff on there outside the box of what you would expect from Overkill in a lot of cases. It's definitely not the album I would recommend to somebody wanting to check out Overkill for the first time. Right. 
but there is plenty of cool stuff on there. I'll have to give it a deep listen because I've only I only really know what you played on here because I I wasn't following Overkill around that time. Yeah, Overkill in '96, man. You know, we've played some good stuff and showcased some good stuff already in the show, but you know, '96 was kind of tough because. I mean, we were in the thralls of the alternative rock, you know, and I never really understood alternative rock because to me it was all rock and roll music. It was right. just different styles. The bands had different looks, but mm-hmm. it was all rock music. And my always favorite thing to say back in the day was alternative, alternative to what? Kick-ass rock and roll? Mm-hmm. But nobody ever thought it was funny in 96. <laughs> but there was something that was happening in 96 that made me forget about all the music around me that was new that I didn't like. Yeah. Something that came from the past that was amazing that was going to be new again. And didn't ABBA get back together that year? I think there was an ABBA reunion. Oh, okay. But this even, oh, you're not talking about this that. This even overshadowed that. Bay City Rollers. Even overshadowed that. Wow, this is something. I'm talking about... The one and only, the reuniting of the greatest band of all freaking time, Kiss, in 1996. Where were you when you found out Kiss was getting back together? I was driving home from work. I was working at Pizza Hut at the time, and I I had a cell phone in 1996. Yeah? I had one of the early ones that was, like, massive. It looked like a brick. <laughs> and I was driving home from Pizza Hut, and my the guy who was the singer in my band, who was older than me and was not a Kiss fan, uh, calls me up, and he goes, Hey, I just want to let you know I just saw Kiss on TV, which at, in 1996, that was weird. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, Oh, cool. He's like, Yeah, they were on the Grammys. I was like, The Grammys? He's like, Yeah. They're wearing, like, it's the original guys with the makeup and the costumes. I'm like, what? <laughs> Which, I mean, we knew it was coming. Right. But I was like, oh, it actually, they, now they've unveiled it. And uh, I was like, how'd they look? He's like, they look fat and old. I was Aww. like, oh, you fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, that's how I first heard that, that. And then, but then as far as the, I was in college for the press conference. Yeah. And I remember... It had to have been no more than an hour or two after the press conference happened that I saw MTV, you know, broke in and did like they had done a, a news story on it. Right. And that was and then I, wa- I was glued to MTV for the rest of the day waiting for it to rerun. You know, it was the M- MTV news. You hear it? I, I was wait. I think I must have watched it four or five times that day on nice. MTV just because I was so excited. Exciting times. Man. Oh, totally. Yeah. I never thought Dream I'd come see true. it. I never thought I'd see it. And then all of a sudden it was real. You know, yeah. it was really going to happen. And the tour was coming around to places that I could actually get to, you know. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, because it was the Midwest was where they started. Yeah. Yeah. That was a wild time, and um, but to go back, you know, to '95 when they did MTV Unplugged, which right. I'll spend something off that here because MTV Unplugged came out in 1996, the yeah, album. That's right. Um, but when I first heard about that, because they recorded that in August of '95, right? But it didn't get shown on MTV it's until Halloween. Halloween night. And I was in my dorm room in college, my first semester of college. I was so it. excited for oh, that, me too. man. Uh, I was over at my buddy's house, my number one Kiss Kiss fan friend growing up, Jason. We were over at his house waiting for it to come on. I was so excited. I can't think of anything in the... Like early to mid '90s, entertainment wise, I was more excited for than the anticipation of Kiss Unplugged because 
you knew Gene and you knew Ace and Peter were going to be there. Yeah, and you know, I, I was in love with that era of the band too, like the '90s, the, right. the Eric Singer Bruce Kulick version. So sure. MTV Unplugged is kind of like the best of both worlds. Totally, you know, because before Ace and Peter come out, you get a great performance of the four that were in the band at the time. Yeah, and then you get the reunion on top of it, it's, and then you get all of them. Then you get all of them. I mean, it's like it's honestly. I mean, you, you you could consider it one of the best albums they ever did. It's one of my favorite live albums of all time. Yeah, for sure. because it's it's so unique, and also it was um, it was kind of a. It, was, it felt like a middle finger from us fans to people that were like, they can't play their instruments. Right. Because, like, watch that. Yeah. And because um, they sound amazing on it. And I had a uh, – this was a couple of years later, but I was dating this girl who didn't like them at all. And and she was a singer. And, you know, she thought she knew better than everybody and all this shit. And I was like, you need to watch Kiss Unplugged. And she's like, I'm not going to watch Kiss because they can't play their instruments. They suck. And, and I sat her down and I watched it. And I think we got through like three or four songs and she was just quiet the whole time. And, I, and then I looked over at her. She's like, fuck you. I was yeah. like, what? She's like, they're good. They they actually sound good. She's like, I actually like this. I was like, you're going to say I was going to lean over and be like, in your face, bitch. Well, I pretty much did. <laughs> but that was anytime anyone would you know claim that Kiss was untalented, I would you know, play them in TV unplugged because they sound great on that. Yeah. They can sing, they sing on it and everything. And it was cool because yeah. after years and years of being told kiss socks and, you know, finding rare fans, fellow fans that you could become friends with, but most people just shit and piss on kiss and make fun of you for liking them. In 1996, it was pretty damn cool to be a kiss fan because all of a sudden, all the people that used to give you hell for liking kiss yeah. are all huge kiss fans now. Yeah. Because of the reunion. Oh, yeah, because it was the cool thing to Because it to was see. the coolest thing in the world going on. Yeah. I mean, when you watch, if you, and you can watch it on YouTube, the uh, the announcement tonight with Tupac bringing mm-hmm. Kiss out and, and showing there's a little piece where it shows them backstage where they pretty much get right off that bus, mm-hmm. walk right on through, say hi to a couple of people in the press, yeah. go straight on stage. Oh, they don't even say hi to them. They just pose. They don't say a freaking right. word. The cameras are going mm-hmm. off people are going nuts yeah they walk straight out past a few people and right onto the stage and you look at like the bands that are being announced for awards the eagles are there yeah. they're looking impressed as hell like they're even amazed at seeing kiss on stage and you know it's cool they pan the audience people are just their mouths are wide open their eyes are all wide mm-hmm. and they they can't believe what they're seeing because in 1996 and since you know the late 70s there hasn't been anything like Kiss, including Kiss. Right. Yeah, it was it was a magical year. I yeah. Mean, like from the end of ninety five into ninety six, just it was a blur because like I said, I was in college and like even I had I had roommates and friends that would get in that got into it too. They got right. caught up in the excitement of it too. And then of course the uh, MTV Video Music Awards performance, you know, under the Brooklyn Bridge that yeah. That impressed. I had like three people hanging out in my room that night at the dorms, and and you know we're watching the the and the awards show sucks leading up to it. It's just terrible, right. and like we're watching ninety six. Like, yeah, so like all the performances are lame or they're off key because there's no auto tune back then. At least they were playing live. And then Kiss closed the show, and I remember all of my friends in the room were like, "God, well, Kiss was the best part of the whole thing." And these were people that had no clue about Kiss, right? And I because I was worried. I was like, "God, I hope this doesn't." 
I hope they're not like, oh, those guys are idiots. That's you know? the great thing about it. I mean, when they came back, they came back strong. They put you the know? work in. They did, and they, you know, it was, and it was, they, yeah, I'm sure it was a cash grab, and they made their money, but they did not half-ass it. They, they truly did their best to try to recreate what people remembered from the 70s. Yeah, and the time was right. Yeah, it was totally right. Well, you know, they, and you know, some people don't know they tried to do a reunion tour in 1990. When Hot in the Shade was out, they, See, they tried to get Ace on board. I think that would have been too soon. Well, they wanted Ace to get on board and have Eric Carr do the makeup. That would have been so great. It would have been great, but but promoters weren't willing to pay what they were asking. Yeah. So then they just said, no, we'll wait. And they waited six more years, and then they made a fucking fortune. Yeah. But so to go back to you know how it all got rolling, the MTV Unplugged performance was recorded at Sony Studios on August 9th, 1995. Um, a little quick piece of trivia on this that I didn't know till I researched this. Phil Ashley played keys on the "Every Time I Look at You" segment, and Phil, if you don't, if you remember, Phil Ashley's the guy that plays keys on Crazy Nights. Oh, He's yeah. also the guy that got Gary Corbett the job playing with Kiss. That's right, because they were friends. Right on. So, uh, could have picked just about anything off this right. album and enjoyed it, but uh, one of the songs that I think translated best to Unplug and really got to shine, especially from the original album it came from, is "Going Blind." definitely wouldn't expect from Kevin. No, man, but that <laughs> it was like a boy, that song and a, and a few other ones off of Unplugged that you didn't really expect. I a mean, World Without Heroes. That was like a reawakening for Going Blind. Yeah. You know, it really made me go back and re-listen to it and go, "Oh yeah, it is a good song." Such but a good song. Man, the Unplugged version of that tune is just mm. unbelievably good. Yeah. That song in particular is one of my favorite Kiss songs. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I love it. All right, also in 96, big news in metal. You know, Rob Helford's gone from Judas Priest, has been for a while. 1996 is the year that they find Ripper Owens, singing for a Priest tribute band, and hires him as the finally a replacement for Rob Helford, and Judas Priest continues on. With mixed results. With mixed results, for sure. I'm not a I'm not a giant fan of the material that they did with Ripper. Uh, There's some a, damn good stuff in there, and Ripper is Ripper's a, damn a good great singer. singer. I just, some of that's. I don't know. Demolition. Ugh. Uh, not a, you ever hear uh, the stuff he did with Iced Earth? Yeah. That stuff's yeah, good. Yeah. I, like I don't that. have no issue with his voice. It's it's just the material that Priest was trying to pull off. Yeah. Yeah. Odd. They were, uh, you know, in the times, man. That was Glenn Tipton going, what's big now? Let's try that. Uh, alternative metal. Yeah. Not really my thing. But hats off for them continuing at yeah, least. Yeah. Kept the name and alive. I, and the footage I've seen of Ripper doing the old stuff is great. Oh, yeah. And I, I almost prefer his version of Diamonds and Rust to Rob's. Oh, which right is hard on. To believe. Yeah, that is good. Yeah, because he, he nailed that song. Okay, so, you know, 96, this is an interesting time for me as a person because 
the kiss thing was a big monumental part of our lives. And I was in college this is my first time living out on my own. And, um, you know, and I, I, I didn't know it at the time, but this was the last year that, uh, that I would have my dad around and my dad passed away in April of 97, which that ties into kiss too. Cause he died the same week I saw the reunion tour. That's right. But, uh, I learned guitar from my dad. My dad was, and my mom both were big Beatles fans. And um, when I think of 1996, and when I was doing the research for this, it it, it kind of conjured this up. But uh, the Beatles anthology came out in '96, and if you're not familiar with it, it was basically like a multimedia mega event. And yeah. um, it was an there was albums released and and a coffee table book, and then there was also the three nights in a row on ABC, where there was three parts to the anthology, and they aired it three oh, yeah, nights in a row. Right. I was, remember that, and it was during the Thanksgiving weekend, and I was home from my first semester in college for that weekend for the holiday, and I just remember that being kind of the last real bonding experience with me and my parents around before we lost my dad, and. It just, it just, uh, you know, I hadn't even thought about it since then, but it was watching them get so much joy out of seeing it. Because that Beatles anthology, if you've never watched it, is pretty incredible. Even if you're not a giant Beatles fan, the way it's put together is just amazing. Right. It's hard to come away from it not becoming a Beatles you fan. You will if you watch not. it. Yeah. yeah. Do you, did you watch it when oh, it was yeah. on? Yeah, it For was sure. so well done. And because, you know, it had all new interviews with all the, the, the surviving band members at the time. And, yeah. And just all kinds of them. It was just the great. It was, I still say it's the best rock documentary I've ever seen. It was the ultimate celebration of the Beatles. Yeah. You know, and themselves. And so in depth, just so damn in depth. But um, in part, one of the most important parts of this whole release was they they found some tapes of John Lennon doing demos, vocal demos. And they finished the songs out with the three remaining members. That's awesome. And that so was, cool. And I, I particularly remember again they were premiering those songs during the TV. The like one night they had the first night it was "Free as a Bird," which is a cool song. Yeah. And then the second night is this song, which is great. It was a song written by Lennon in '77, demoed a number of times between '79 and '80, and then it was recorded by the three surviving members in '95 for release on this anthology. To date, it's the last released record of new material credited to the Beatles. And it's a song called Real Love. Oh, yeah. 
trip, man. 1996, the biggest bands in the world, Kiss and the Beatles. And the Beatles. I mean, <laughs> so that yeah, it was like one of those things where me and my parents could both celebrate. And our favorite bands were kind of ruling the world again at the time. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, because you got to figure your parents when they were young and they were into the Beatles. You know, they probably caught hell from their olders oh, too. You know, and so they look at you kids into your crazy bands like yeah. Kiss. You know, and public enemy eric <laughs> and they gotta kind of understand you know yeah but yeah uh, that was yeah oh yeah there was issues with my mom like she tried to get my grandfather to let her go see the beatles in memphis in like 66 i think yeah and he wouldn't let her go dang yeah she wow. ne- she never forgave him for that either no that's a tough one it's a tough one to get over <laughs> right all right so we continue on as we've learned By 1996, Atlantic Records has turned their backs on many of the bands that they championed just a few short years earlier. But here's a rock band that they have no problem putting their full support behind. It's the Stone Temple Pilots, who released their third studio album, Tiny Music, Songs from the Vatican Gift Shop, which presents the label with a set of problems all their own, as the band is very unfocused on STP. And Scott Weiland is, well, you know, you guessed it, doing a lot of serious drugs at the time. He's also on probation for attempting to buy crack. Everybody else has moved on to a side band called Talk Show. So they had a bunch of songs to divide into two different albums by two different bands. And we'll, we'll use this one for Stone Pilots. We'll use this one for the side project. It was all written together. Right. So they just split it off. The sound they come up with was a lot less grunge and a lot more flavored like Mark Bolin in 70s Styles Glam Rock. And if there was such a thing, the 1996 award for the weirdest album cover and title combination would definitely go to the Stone Temple Pilots. Strange stuff going on. STP still doing pretty good for themselves considering that they really don't have their shit together in 1996. The album would go to number four on the U.S. charts backed by the singles Lady Picture Show and Tripping on a Hole in a Paper Heart. The album didn't sell quite as well as the previous two STP releases, possibly because of a lack of much touring for it due to the insanity that is Scott Weiland. That includes blowing the opening slot for the Mega Kiss reunion tour. through your computer, worlds of information one click away. All the things you find only on the world's most popular internet online service, now more affordable than ever, it's like living in the future. The future, now available on America Online. 
Hey, I'm Alexi Lalas from the U.S. soccer team. Be sure to fill up with high-quality BP Super 93 and pick up the BP Super Soccer Ball for just $5.99. It's available only at BP stations with an 8-gallon purchase of high-octane BP Super 93, the official gasoline of U.S. soccer. You get great gasoline, this great ball, plus you're helping support the U.S. soccer teams competing this summer. Get on the ball. BP, we keep it moving. Friday night, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls pound off the Sonics down the stretch and escape with a 2-0 series lead. Now, as the scene shifts to Seattle, Sean Kemp and company hope the key arena will hold the key to victory. The drama builds for Game 3 of the NBA Finals tonight at 7 Eastern on NBC. Welcome back to the Decibel Geek Podcast as we explore the world that is 1996. And man, you know, there's some weird stuff going on in the world of music and entertainment. But as far as sports go, 1996 is a super exciting year. I mean, there's some really awesome stuff going on. Talking about times like uh, Super Bowl Thirty. The Dallas Cowboys defeat the Pittsburgh Steelers 27-17. This is classic Cowboys time. I'm talking Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, Moose Johnston, Michael Irving, and Neon Deion Sanders. Mm -hmm. That's a classic lineup right there. In 96, the Browns leave Cleveland in the dead of night. Yeah. Slide on over to Baltimore and become the Ravens. 96 is also the Houston Oilers' final season. And it's also the year that Jimmy Johnson replaces Don Shula as the head coach of the Miami Dolphins. Don Shula had a long run. Uh, Keyshawn Johnson is the first selection in the NFL draft. In baseball, the Yankees win the World Series, defeating the Atlanta Braves four Uh, games to two. You remember that, don't you? I'd I'd like to forget, but yeah, I remember that. (laughs) Um, In the NBA Finals, the Chicago Bulls over the Seattle Supersonics four games to two. This is Mm -hmm. is another classic one here. You know, MVP Michael Jordan. Plus, you got Scottie Pippen, Steve Kerr, John Sally. Unstoppable. And the worm, Dennis Rodman. Yep. He was suspended for 11 games that season for kicking the cameraman. You remember that? Yeah, I hadn't thought about that in years. He was running, and the cameraman kind of got in his way, and then he ended up kicking him. Yeah. Suspended for 11 games. Rodman was certainly a character. Yeah, he was. 96 is the year Kobe Bryant and Shaq joined the L.A. Lakers. That's going to come into fruition in years coming past 96. In golf, Tiger Woods becomes the first person to win the uh, U.S. Amateur Championship three times in a row. So it's the rise of Tiger Woods in 96. In the NHL, at the end of the 95 season, the Quebec Nordics were sold and relocated, becoming the Colorado Avalanche. In their Mm. first season in Denver, they bring the Stanley Cup back to their new home, shutting out the Florida Panthers four games to zero. Wow, not not a bad start. NHL's leading scorer and league MVP that year, Pittsburgh Penguin Mario Lemieux. Yeah, everybody knows that guy. 1996 stars of tennis names you might remember: Boris Becker. Pete Sampras, Monica Seles, and Steffi Graf. And, of course, the 1996 Summer Olympics held in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, with home field advantage and all, the U.S. pretty much dominates taking 44 gold medals. 
Wow. They did pretty damn good in 96. That's the year with the men's U.S. basketball super team. It's got Carl Malone, Hakeem Olajuwon, Charles Barkley, Shaq, Reggie Miller, all kinds of guys on that team. They bring home gold. Alexi Lawless. Yeah. That's the year of Alexi Lawless, 96, the U.S. soccer team. They look strong, but they come up a little short. They beat Tanzania and tie Portugal and lose to Argentina. But the U.S. women's soccer team bring home, brings home the gold. But that's the year that makes Alexi Lalas a household name. Yep. Um, and in the Olympics also, even though he's kind of on a career slide, Andre Agassi still around. He brings home some gold in tennis. Now, this is the uh, shaved head, meth curious era. Meth curious? He's meth curious in 96. He's not there yet, <laughs> but he's kind of thinking about it. Oh, man. 1996 in the Olympics. That's the year my Olympic hero, Kurt Angle, wins a gold medal in wrestling with a broken freaking neck. Wow. Heck yeah. And of course, in the biggest news story in sports in 1996. So this one's got a little backstory to it. Let me let me lead you up to this. This is a big Big, huge sports story. This isn't about Hang on now a second. You just let me go on. You don't interrupt the most important sports story right now. Throughout 1996, World Championship Wrestling has been repeatedly invaded by two of the WWF's top stars, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, formerly known as Diesel and Reza Ramon. On July 7th, the two outsiders agree to face the team of WCW loyalists Sting, Lex Luger, and the macho man Randy Savage in a six-man tag team match without revealing the identity of their third man. Even at the time of the match, Hall and Nash come out alone. When Lex Luger goes down to injury, Hulk Hogan... Yeah, that's right. Hulk Hogan makes a surprise appearance to the to the delight of the fans. Instead of coming to the rescue of the fan favorites, as the most popular wrestler of the 80s has been prone to do, he would instead attack his longtime frenemy, Randy Savage, joining forces with Hall and Nash. Fans around the world would erupt with outrage <laughs> as he ditches the red and yellow, dubs himself Hollywood Hogan, and reinvents himself as the most hated villain of the 90s. NWO for life. That's your biggest news story in 1996. Can you believe it? Biggest news story, and not even biggest sports story. Well, I would go ahead and say the biggest news story of all. Transcending sports. Wow. Hollywood Hogan. He is back on top. I'm glad you didn't. I'm, I'm glad you didn't oversell it. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, well, that's what I know about sports no, in '96. Yeah. Well, I will say, I will say, it was a genius move writing wise. Oh, as totally. Far as how they they how they scripted that out. Totally, because I mean, no one saw it coming. From then on, for like '89, '87, '89, somewhere around there. Many, many weeks in a row, like years to almost two years worth, WCW would actually beat WWF Mm -hmm. in the ratings. So, I mean, it really, it wasn't just a career, a career resurgence for Hogan. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a resurgence for the entire pro wrestling industry that would last for years to come. And that was really the kickoff of it, I think. Because they knocked the top dog off the block for a little while. Yeah. Doing some exciting stuff. All right, what do we got going up next? Oh, here's one. Oh, this is this is great. I always love when I have an opportunity to play and talk about one of my favorite bands. Formed in 1987 as a four-piece called Root Awakening in Zion, Illinois. When half of their bandmates drop off, 
Scott Lucas and Joe Daniels dedicate themselves to carry on as a two-piece and change their name to Local H. Their 1995 debut album, Ham-Fisted, failed to chart anywhere, but the 1996 concept album, As Good As Dead, would crack the U.S. album charts topping out at a whopping 147. They get some attention when rock radio picks up on the single Bound for the Floor. That's like they're they're <laughs> rock and roll all night. They got to play it. You know, that's the song they're known for. It's not their best song, but they got some great ones. Uh, the, song's Fritz, uh, the song Fritz's Corner is included on the OzFest double CD set that comes out. And a few rock radio stations even pick up and play the heavily edited high-fiving motherfucker. in Stamford, Connecticut with producer Stephen Hagler, who was doing some good stuff with Clutch around that same time and would go on to do big business with Fuel. It's not my favorite Local H album, but it's not bad. I mean, to me, in my personal opinion, these guys get better and better with every album they come out with, so their most recent is always my favorite, but this one's got some good stuff on it. It's their most highly acclaimed, I would guess, yeah, because of that song that everybody knows, nobody really likes. I'm telling you, Local H's got way better songs than that one. But I hate that song. Like I said, this one's got that Fritz's Corner on it, and High Five and Motherfuckers a great tune, and I hate Bound Flies. I hate Bound for the Floor so much (laughs) that Macarena also came out in 1996, Uh and I have a hard time deciding which one I like less. Ooh, that's how much I don't like. Ouch, that's tough. Yeah, one story that would be. Hard to ignore from 1996 is the arrest of the Unabomber. Yeah. And, like, it's it's such a footnote now, but, gosh, it was... I remember when the hunt was on for the guy, and it was a big story. And I mean, he the, made people scared to open their mail for a long-ass time. And that drawing of him in the hoodie yeah. was, like, 
every year there'd be a, a, the news would cover it, and you know we're still looking for this guy. Yeah, they busted in on him in '96 uh, in his secluded Montana cabin. His reign of terror is over. He's convicted with ten counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs, and three counts of murder, and is sentenced to serve eight life sentences. Yeah, that guy's not getting out. No, not anytime soon. But once again, people can safely check their mail. He's a disgrace to fellow Polish people. For sure. Yeah. What a jerk. Here's something interesting that probably most people may not know about. This one, I think probably, hmm, in 96, I don't think a lot of people probably got this one. But after this, I'm betting you're going to wish you had. R.J. Manning met Eric Dover in 1993 when he was looking for a touring guitarist for his band Jellyfish. They would go on to work together after that band breaks up, and they write an album. But before they can completely record it, Eric Dover auditions for a project that Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash is working on. Dover gets that gig, which would end up becoming Slash's Snake Pit. They record the stellar album, It's 5 O'Clock Somewhere, and go on tour until Geffen decides it's time for Slash to rejoin Guns N' Roses and pulls all support, effectively ending Snake Pit and Dover's employment. But that frees him up to pick up where he left off with Manning. They add the rhythm section of Joseph Ka- Joseph Kames and Eric Scotus, and Imperial Drag is born. You're rushing us into the music. In fact, you should tend to lean back a little. They call it laid back. It's a sordid term, but that's how it's used. Instead of getting an offer from Geffen, they end up on Work Records, whose top artist is Jamiroquai. Oh, boy. There's a sign of the times. Mm. The single Boy or Girl got minimal airplay, and the album did not sell very well, even though it's an extremely enjoyable rock record. Yeah. After the great work Dover had done with Snake Pit, it kind of surprises me that they wouldn't have 
backed Imperial Drag. You know, you think you'd have seen, hey, this is pretty good. This album turned out really great. Let's throw some money behind Imperial Drag. I feel like that if they, this album would have gotten some sort of promotion with mm-hmm. its 70s kind of vibe, this band could have been right up there with the Black Crows who were kind of doing the same thing and also doing big business in 96. Yeah, there was, I mean, there was a definite resurgence of that style yeah. going on. And I, yeah, it... That's one of those curiosities from from that era where it's like, why did this album not succeed? Because it probably should have. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. I mean, the whole album yeah, it's is great material really good. from start to finish. I mean, and the songwriting's really strong on it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, King's X in May of that year put out Ear Candy. It's a great album. Yeah, it was their sixth studio album, last album that they cut for Atlantic Records. The band was a surprise highlight a couple of years earlier at the Woodstock Festival, but just never turned into a bigger success like people thought they were going to. Um, Ear Candy features a bunch of great playing and cool songs like Picture, Mississippi Moon, and this one that features Toad the Wet Sprockets' Glenn Phillips on backing vocals. It's simply called A Box. King's X has gone on to do a lot of uh, albums with, you know, smaller labels and independent right. stuff. And one of the more recent albums, Ogre Tones, was recorded here in Nashville with Michael Wagner. That's right. That album's got a lot of good stuff on it, too. If you've never seen King's X live, what are you waiting for? If they come near you, go see them because they're, they're, they have to be experienced all the way live to, to understand it. Yeah, and 96, Sign of the Times, you know, King's X about to get dropped from their major label. Yeah, this was, one of, this was one of my favorite albums to get high to back in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a good one for that. Yeah, yeah there's a lot. That, that song, A Box in particular, I used to love getting stoned and listening to that song. Right on. Yeah. Okay, so another album that, that really meant a lot to me during this period in 1996 was Down on the Upside by uh, Soundgarden. And... This was the last album that they would do for a very long time, I think 16 years. It was uh, their fifth studio album. Definitely a more experimental approach on this album. There's less co-writes from Kim Thale and more from Chris Cornell and bassist Ben Shepard. It is kind of an all-over-the-place album, but I, for some reason, I really like bands. I I like albums that are being done by bands that are falling apart, and this one was no exception. Um, I have a soft spot for this album as it was my go-to album at the time of a very bad breakup. I was not in a good place mentally at the time, so naturally, the song with 21 utterances of the word fuck would be my favorite track on the album. (laughs) I'm talking about a song called Ty Cobb.
one of those ones where, you know, you can think about where you were listening to it when it was new, when you were hearing those songs and go, oh, yeah, yeah. 1996. Yeah. I I went through a rough breakup, and, and that song, Tykov, kind of helped get me through it because it's one of those angry songs you just blast. Right on. Yeah. I guess you were about at that age. Yeah. Learning life, becoming a man. A lot of changes around that age. Around With the that help time. of Soundgarden. Yeah. All right. Well, here's something a little different than that. By 1996, Great White are veterans of the rock game. And what a long, strange trip it's been to lead them where they find themselves in 1996. Great White enjoyed success from the very beginning with musicianship, songwriting, exciting live shows, and the managerial prowess of Alan Niven. Their 1984 self-titled debut cracked the uh, U.S. album charts at 144. They're quickly signed to Capitol Records after that. Their next album goes to 82. I mean, that's not bad for a band on the road without any big hit singles. Their popularity really begins to skyrocket with the release of Once Bitten, which takes them even higher on the U.S. charts to number 23. They had hit their height in 89, establishing themselves as one of the biggest rock acts in the world with help from their U.S. top five single, Once Bitten, Twice Shy. The Twice Shy album climbs all the way to number nine. They follow up that with hooked in 91 it doesn't match the sales of twice shy but still reaches number 18 they fire back in 92 with psycho city it only reaches 107 and the band is dropped by columbia records mm-hmm. can you imagine that selling as many albums as it takes to reach 107 on the charts in the u.s and having that be deemed such a failure that you need to be dropped from your label Yep. I mean, that's still a lot of albums and a lot of money in 96. Grunge was on its way in. It's a sign of the old uh, alternative times, I guess. They end up signing with Zoo Entertainment, where they are label mates with Green Jelly. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I just thought that was kind of funny. That'd be a cool tour. They released Sail Away, which Jack Russell has described as Great White trying to be the Eagles. I like that album. The title track is an AOR hit, and they managed to stay on the charts at 168. But the experiment is viewed as a major failure. They end up firing longtime manager, producer, musical collaborator Alan Niven and decide to get back to their roots and create the kind of classic, no frills, meat and potatoes, bluesy hard rock album that made them rock demigods in the late 80s. And in 1996, they release Let It Rock.
seems like a long way to get here to go through all this band's albums to highlight just how popular they were during their entire career. But it's important to get the big picture to realize that after all those years and all that success, 1996 would mark the first time that a great white album would fail to crack the U.S. top 200 album charts. Wow. Although it's largely ignored at the time, and I guess nowadays too pretty much, Let It Rock is a really killer great white album, and I mean, it's Mm. solid all the way through. I mean, these guys were trying to just be great white again, and they nailed it, and they killed it. Yeah. But in 96, nobody gave a shit. So another band that definitely was probably, you know, and it's funny because they were coming off some real big success just a couple of years earlier with Scorpions. Right. You know, um, that Wind of Change song was, what, 90, 91, I think? Yeah, it's not too long. Not too long before this, and that was a massive hit. And then by 1996, they put out Pure Instinct on May 21st as their 13th studio album. It's the only Scorpions album on which session musician Kurt Kress plays drums. So Hmm. they didn't even really have a full-time drummer, I guess, at the time. Um, this album is weird. Um, it's, which this is probably, they were trying to kind of rely on a try and true thing because Wind Winds of Change was not a love song, but it was a ballad. Right. And, uh, I think they probably were viewing, well, ballads work for us. So then they, they put more ballads than non-ballads on this record, which ah. that's a no-no, which that, and it's funny, I'm a ballads guy. I like ballads, but. But even that was too much. It's too much. Well, even the, the most recent album they did, I think it's called Return to Forever. Yeah. Like, there's like half the songs are ballads. Right. It's like. Come, Some of the best songs on that one are the bonus tracks that yeah, really rock. Let, let's not, uh, let's not go over the top here, but uh, this song and one other were produced by 80s mega producer Keith Olsen and uh, they've got this sounds straight out of the 80s and it's got a good riff on it and uh, we're going into the break with Scorpions doing a song from 1996 called Wild Child in pursuit of cool, which, like energy, can neither be created nor destroyed, only enjoyed. Sometimes I cannot be as one with cool, too busy with the grind. But when I shake loose, I home in on cool like a bird dog with my Motorola pager. It's how I stay connected with my very cool friends. So when my Motorola pager beeps or vibrates, I know that somewhere coolness is calling. Get a Motorola pager and know. Now, not knowing is not cool. Motorola, what you never thought possible. 
We have our differences, different jobs, different deodorants, different phone companies. Truth is, regardless of who we are, what we are, or what phone company we choose, every one of us can use 1-800-COLLECT to save money on collect calls. 1-800-COLLECT. I'm feeling a lot of love here. 1-800-COLLECT. Anyone can use it, everyone can save it. When a family careens into a raging river... Rescuers battle overwhelming odds. His baby was going to die. America's Stories. Rescue 911 CBS Next. Saturday, a major motion picture event. I think he's the most dangerous man I've ever known. Chuck Norris. I'm going to take him down. A special walker at a special time. CBS Saturday. Conspiracy. Kidnapping. Murder. And the clues lead to Jessica. She's got to catch me. A captivating episode of Murder, She Wrote. CBS Sunday. This is CBS. Whoa. To the Decibel Geek Podcast, talking about 1996, talking about hard rock, metal, sports, all kinds of cool stuff, news stories, things going on. And, uh, you know, it's always cool to look back at these times and it gives you a good spotlight of, you know, where was I in 96? And I always think a really cool way to put that in, into perspective is to look at what was big on TV yeah. in 96. Yeah, I think I was mostly watching King of the Hill and Beavis and Butthead around this time. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, and, and Cheech and Chong movies. Right. Um, but notable, there were some not- notable things that happened in the television industry that year, including the first HD projection television. Oh, wow. Which probably cost who knows how much. Right, yeah. Insanely expensive when it was new. Uh, also, Nickelodeon debuted TV Land. Remember that? Where they would, oh, yeah. They would show, the like, old shows. The old shows. Like the monkeys and yeah, stuff. Yeah. Dick, Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah. yeah, I used to love those shows. Uh, MTV premiered M2 because people were bitching about not enough music on the channel. So yeah. they were like, okay, here's another channel that plays music. And now there's no M2 no more either. Failed. Um, the ending of the Phil Donahue show. Of course, Kiss fans will remember the Peter Chris episode of, course, of that yeah. show. I stayed home from sick from school to watch that. My dad taped it for me while I was at school. <laughs> and I got home and he was like, you're never going to believe what I taped for you today. Yeah. I can't believe I'm letting you watch this garbage. No, he enjoyed it. He got, yeah. caught, he got caught up in the whole thing, too. Oh, he wow. thought it was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, also, well, probably the biggest thing that got the most tele- the most viewership hours was the O.J. Simpson trial started in yeah. 1996. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so the top 10 shows of 1996 were, uh, number 10 was NYPD Blue, which mm. I used to love that show, 60 Minutes, Boston Common, which I didn't think that show was that popular, Home Improvement, arr, arr, arr. The Single Guy, do you even remember The Single Guy? I don't even remember that I show. I don't remember The Single Guy. Monday Night Football was number five. Yeah, of course, that's always going to yeah. be right up there. Caroline in the City was number four. And then uh, the top three were really big shows. Friends was three. Seinfeld yeah. was two. And the number one show in 1996 was ER. Oh, wow. Remember, ER was a ER, big show. ER, Friends, and Seinfeld. Yeah. Yep, that's for, 1996 for sure. George Clooney was a TV star in 1996. Yeah. <laughs> uh, other notable shows that year that, that are included were Frasier, 
Coach, which I used to love watching. Coach was cool. The Dana Carvey show, which lasted all of seven really inappropriate episodes. But I don't even remember that. It was it was really funny, but it was not made for primetime television. Really? Yeah. Very risque? Very. <laughs> and then the uh, the greatest show, of course, on television, Walker, Texas Ranger. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was one on. of my favorites from around then. Yeah. All right. So uh, I was a big fan of Superman, the animated series, too. Were you? Yeah, I like that oh, shit. Okay. All right. So in May, Pantera put a record out. Oh, yeah. this I remember the anticipation for this one. Me, too. I was a first-day buyer. Yes. The Great Southern Trend Kill came out on May 22nd. was their eighth studio album, released on East-West Records. Reached number four on the Billboard 200 chart and stayed on the chart for over 16 weeks. And that's, for an album this heavy, that's pretty damn impressive. Yeah. To stay on the Billboard chart yeah. for that long. Um, due to tension and conflicts within the band, Philip Anselmo recorded his vocals alone at Trent Reznor's Nothing Studios in New Orleans. Wow. While the rest of the band recorded the music at Chase and Jason Studios in Dallas, Texas. This album is incredible and has a ton of killer tracks, including the title track, Drag the Waters, 13 Steps to Nowhere, and War Nerve. inch of planet earth that's poetry it is some sort of poetry <laughs> um and then, violent angry poetry and i thought it was summed up nicely in a review from melody maker from 1996 the review says it makes my brain hurt my eyes water and my genitalia retract like a startled turtle i cannot think of a higher recommendation considering the kind of album that it is right that's pantera it was out of this world man to top the stuff they'd come out with before it was like you know by the time they got to uh strength or uh reinventing the steel reinventing the steel they were so freaking heavy and yeah. it's like how do you do one more than that but yeah awesome album i love that one it's cool that the thrash metal bands in the age of alternative rock are actually doing all right for themselves a lot of them and you know including that pick and the next two we're going to be talking about three of the biggest thrash icons out there. And the next one I've got is another story like that, because while many thrash bands are kind of floundering or changing their style in the mid-90s, Slayer is doing what they want to do, 
and still holding their own. They're still riding the success of Divine Intervention, recorded with Toby Wright, and they headlined a world tour supported by Machine Head and Biohazard, and they were also at the top of the Monsters of Rock Festival bill with Skid Row and Metallica. Having done all that, it's time for Slayer to do something for themselves, and they record a tribute album to their favorite punk rockers, and they call it The Lasagna Dilemma. Really? <laughs> I was hoping for a laugh. Oh. Never mind. They call it disputed attitude. Well, I don't know. I didn't know if it was for real. You know, like spaghetti incident? No, I get it. Lasagna dilemma? Yeah. It's no funny if I got to explain it. It includes two songs written by Hanneman and Lombardo, along with Rocky George from uh, Suicidal Tendencies. It also covers a bunch of bands like Iggy and the Stooges, TSOL, Minor Threat, and DRI, plus a brand new Slayer original track called Gemini. In 1996, Slayer will also appear at Ozfest on the top of the bill behind only the Prince of Darkness himself. It's good times for Slayer in the mid-90s. They're doing all right. Yeah, they kind of weathered the storm with the grunge thing. Yeah, they did. You know, they, man, I can't believe my lasagna dilemma joke fell so flat. My brain was in somewhere else. (laughs) When I hear Slayer, I tune out. I feel like I just did like a jumping high five and you weren't there and I fell flat on my face. I left you hanging. I'm sorry, bro. Damn it, 96 has got us all out of our element. I'm sure you guys listening got a laugh, though. So we're talking about Pantera, Slayer, talking about, you know, thrash masters, legendary artists in the thrash genre. And that brings us up to the biggest music-related story of 1996, Metallica's haircuts. Right. I remember how big a deal this was. That was it, man. You took one look at Metallica and their goofy haircuts were like, wait a minute, something's not right here. Oh, they had mascara on, too. And all that, yeah. I mean, I read recently in an article that said, uh, um, Lars recently said in an interview with an Orlando radio station that it had been three years since anyone had seen the band Mm -hmm. and that they'd all gotten haircuts on their own and, you know, 
it was just coincidence, not a thought-out image change. But I've also read statements from James Hetfield where he says all that shit was Kirk and Lars trying to reinvent the band in a new era. Really? Yeah. I mean, Hmm. I don't know if I buy that whole thing. I mean, yeah, the internet wasn't prevalent and people didn't have, you know, cameras that took pictures back then. Yeah. But these guys were still out playing live and stuff. Yeah. You know. Lars always... I'd struck like to, me as a trend follower, though. If I had the time, or I challenge somebody that maybe does have the time, go back and look at concert footage from between the Black Album and between '96, and see if I they saw that did. At that time. Did they all get their haircuts at the same time, or was it really little by little? When I saw them, I saw them when they were promoting live shit, binge and purge. Yeah, but they still all had their hair at that point, right? Yeah. But that was in between. Yeah. But I don't know. No, I don't it know. didn't. Uh, I I would I'd hazard a guess that it was it was planned. It was planned. You yeah. know, it was planned. They even changed the band logo and made that a lot less cool. Yeah, they fucked up. They went and fucked up their own logo too. I mean, yeah. And then they started calling themselves Talica, which was annoying. As That's shit. not cool. Even though I kind of agree with it because there was no metal. Right. Yeah, it's a good point. Good point. And I guess James went along with the weird-ass videos and shit as a concession for including a country and western number on the album. Oh, God. Man, I'll never forget seeing the video for Until It Sleeps for the first time. My mind was blown in a really bad way. The song wasn't really metal. Kirk looked like Carlos Santana in drag. (laughs) Lars is is angry about his feather boa and being molested by Satan. (laughs) All right. Jason appears to be smearing poop all over himself. And then you got the cowboy James over there. You got Jesus over here, Horsehead Man's over there, and all kinds of other crazy shit that was nothing like the Metallica that I knew and loved. Where do I take this pain of mine? I run, but it stays right by my side. See, now, at least this gave the fans that bitched about Metallica selling out on the Black Album a reason to give that album a new appreciation. Right. I mean, it's still sold like crazy, going five times platinum and topping the U.S. album charts at numero uno. But it had been five years since a new Metallica album, and people were pretty excited. This phase of Metallica would last for two more albums and 12 more years. Yep. I always felt bad for the people of a younger generation because this was their Metallica. Yeah, but I mean, sad. You gotta look at the sales. The sales were there. I mean, so I need, and I can't totally bitch. I mean, Load wasn't complete garbage. There was, there's moments. There's moments on there. It's better than what you got coming up for the next two albums. Reload is complete shit. And Saint Anger. Saint Anger. I'll take take Load over Saint Anger. Oh yeah, I'll take I'll take every album in their catalog over Saint Anger. Yeah. But load, I thought it was, I thought it was poetic that the cover of load is a bunch of sperm. It's basically, it's just their way of saying this album is a load. We've creatively shot our wad, so enjoy. 
They were trying to do something cool and creative, but I mean, well, there's a moment in the some kind of monster documentary where you actually see them talk. They show their true colors on how they feel about these records. Yeah, where they're they're sitting around the table and they're you know because Saint Anger was them. They were stuck for ideas. And they're sitting around the table trying to figure out what to do next because none of the stuff's working. And uh, Lars at one point goes, well, you know, he said something like, I think we have pieces of stuff that we could cobble together to create something that sounds kind of like a Metallica record. I mean, that's what we did with with the Load and Reload albums. And James kind of laughs and goes, yeah. Ah. So, I mean, that tells you right there. They knew they did. They just... You're, it's a band that ran it had run out of ideas. Yeah, and I guess what you do is you don't want to put out you know Black Album Part Two, but not as good. Right. So the best thing you can Just do is come up with direction. something totally different, so that people can say, "Well, this isn't as good as that," and you say, "Well, but this is way different than that." You can't compare this to that because we've intentionally done this. Right. I don't know, man. Not good times to be a Metallica fan. Not in my recognition well, anyway, but I mean, like I said, there's people out there that are younger than me that this was their Metallica and yeah. you know, the stuff before it wasn't as good, but I don't understand that. I don't either. It was a sad time for me because I mean, with it's it's a roller coaster in ninety six, you know, you right. get the, the, the rush and the amazingness of Kiss coming back and then it's like, Oh, Metallica's back too. Oh wait, ooh, uh, what's this? Well, if you were depressed about Metallica you still had porn. Still had porn. Yeah. You definitely did because in 93, we found out 96. that internet porn is okay. Yes. The Communications Decency Act of 96 began as the government's attempt to regulate internet porn, but became a huge debate over the First Amendment. In the end, the U.S. government ruled that they could not impede upon adults' rights to free speech by restricting the creation and or consumption of pornographic material. They could, however, use the act to protect minors from receiving, viewing, or being forced into participating in porn, and were A-OK with that. See, nothing wrong with that. You know, yeah. 96, it just shows that how important the Internet is becoming. I mean, I think the stat for 96 was something like in 95, like 1 million homes had internet, you know, mm-hmm. or had, you know, home computers by 96. It's like 10 million. Yeah. It's, it's very prevalent now. 96 was the, well, late 95 was when yeah. I discovered the internet was when I first got on it. Yeah. Cause I mean, this is the time now it's where to the point where they're having to look at it and go, okay, we have to make laws and rules about this because this is obviously going to become an all consuming everyday yeah. part of our lives, you know, and it needs to be watched just like any other aspect of life, I guess. Yeah, well, there's a whole discussion we could have along those lines in today's society. Right, yeah. With recent rulings on things. Right, true. Um, Neutrality and all that. Yeah, there's a whole... There's a whole talk to be had there. VIP content. Okay, maybe. cool. I, I was going to ask you yeah. about all that. Yeah. So uh, Zach Wilde puts Book of Shadows out in June of 1996. Oh, yeah. This was his first solo album, much different in tone than the stuff he had done with Ozzy and Black Label. Uh, the music on this is a lot more representative of, I'd say, of the Pride and Glory material as well as Zach's influences growing up. Yeah. Um, there's some powerful songs on this album, including uh, Throwing It All Away, which was written about Shannon Hoon from Blind Melon. And Zach was actually Shannon's roommate when Shannon OD'd. Oh, wow. Which I, I didn't know, know that. Didn't know that. Uh, I particularly love the single Way Beyond Empty, which sounds like the best Almond Brothers songs that Almond Brothers never did. If I could, I surely would ease your pain. But if I could no longer, would you still know my name? 
That's a great album, man. I love that yeah, one. Yeah, if I uh if I'm, if metal I'm, and southern rock and yeah. you know, a little like you said, that song's kinda like Almond Brothers ish and mm-hmm. I love it a lot. That's a really good one. I think it's the best thing he's ever done, you know, outside of Ozzy. Yeah, know. really? I, yeah, I like Ooh. this I like this over the black label stuff myself. Oh, I don't know. That's that's although a tough I don't one know, Pride and Glory is pretty great too. Pride and Glory's awesome. Zach Wilde's a talented dude, you he know, is. and that obviously has been for a long time. Has you know flourished with ozzy since he's in the early days and you know did good in the 90s and is still going strong today you know that's a testament to this guy's staying power right it's good stuff so um what have we learned today that kiss is back together yeah Woo! and the metallica's confused well we're all confused (laughs) by metallica yeah, it's uh, it's been, it's an interesting, and we're only halfway through the year, so yeah. so we have there's another, a lot of great stuff in the part second part of the year too. Yeah, a lot of crazy shit. There's too. another half of the year to go, so it's been an interesting year to look back on. Um, a lot of personal feelings about stuff that was going on at the time. This yeah. one kind of hits more close to home for me than some of the '80s ones we did because I was just a little kid then. Right? Yeah, because the '80s and '70s stuff we look back as a like a research and retrospective kind of yeah. thing. Or not so much retrospective because we weren't there, but '96. I mean, we were young men. I was right in the middle of everything, with yeah. feelings and emotions yeah. and acne and anger, <laughs> acne and anger, acne and anger. There's a band name. <laughs> Don't let two hear you say that. Yeah, I know. That's why I said that. Uh, no, but it's interesting year to look back on, and uh-huh. and uh, considering you know, and music was a real blender of stuff. And I think as we've shown, it wasn't just grunge and alternative. But and I actually, before I came over, I just flip through a playlist on spotify of just like hits from 1996 oh boy. oh man terrible hit music oh rough time even for top 40 music was bad right as yeah. we always seem to end the second year part we'll say hey you think it was all this oh, music was great but it Lord. wasn't all good good 96 oh man it, none of it was good 96 other than what we're playing on these two episodes i think a lot of mariah Very... carey and bone thugs and harmony yeah <laughs> I was like, wow yeah. some of this stuff i hadn't listened to since 96 tough times man yeah. tough times for hard rock and metal but we're powering through it we're finding you the best stuff about it and all the funny interesting stories that go along with it and we will be back next week for part two of it if you have noticed that we have missed something that you loved in 1996 in the first part of the year hey when you see this go up on our facebook page and on twitter you know make your comments on there let us know hey you guys missed this important album that came out on the first part of the year in Mm -hmm. 1996 and hey even let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about in the next year or the next half of the year Mm -hmm. because that's coming up next week and we're about to start our homework on it i cut about three or four songs i had initially picked so i'm sure some people are going where was sepultura right yeah me too but uh but yeah i mean obviously for both of us as giant kiss fans kiss was sort of the centerpiece of that year for us for sure 
for a lot of people, but it was um, an exciting summer. And I remember, you know, June, I just all the build up, seeing all the media attention, all the magazine covers. It, just, it, was, it was crazy. It, it was, was our taste of the 70s. Right. It was as close as guys like us could get that were too young to experience the the. The frenzy. frenzy of Kiss in the seventies to be able to kind of say, okay, this is kind of what it was like because in ninety six, I mean, Kiss Mania, I mean, they really were the biggest band in the world, at least in my perspective, because they were everywhere. They were certainly the most exposed band in the yeah. world at the time because every every it seemed like every media outlet was wanting a piece of it. Of course, yeah. I mean, you got those guys looking like the way they do well, on their album cover. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> they still said fuck them. But the took four, them a long time to come around. But the four spin magazine covers were, were pretty uh, awesome. Yeah, I remember those. Those were cool as hell. I remember picking those up in the store and just, I mean, seeing those on the magazine, I'm like, holy shit, this is actually real. Can you, you know? believe it? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, just a couple years prior, my friends are beating me up because I listen to Forever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I like Kiss. I've always liked Kiss. I mean, how many times did people bullshit their way and say, yeah. I've always been a Kiss fan? It's like, Damn right. If all the people that said they were always a Kiss fan were for real, then Kiss would have sold multi-millions in the 80s. Right. They would have never had to reunite. Right. They would still be wearing the of, asylum outfits. Bunch of bandwagon jumpers. Yeah. But as part of, you know, of course, and they opened the, they did their warm-up show at the K-Rock Weenie Roast, yep. which was a disaster. Um, I had that on bootleg video, but they had all kinds of technical problems and stuff catching on fire. The, like part of the roof catches on fire and they're playing uh, during the beginning of Deuce, the the firehouse siren starts going off halfway through the song. Oh, this is working out all oh, the kinks. Yeah. yeah. And then like, remember at the end of Love Gun, Paul would use his guitar like a gun and the fireworks would go off. At the beginning of Love Gun, somebody triggered the fireworks to go off at the very beginning of the song. And all of a sudden they're like, they're looking around like, what the hell just happened? It was, I mean, if you ever get a chance to watch the video of that show, it's pretty funny. But, uh, but of course, Tiger Stadium in Detroit was the the proper intro yeah. for the for the tour. And uh, if you watch, and actually, you know, it's funny on the Kissology video, it, that's just a screen feed, so it doesn't really capture the craziness. But I and I, our friend Chris Epting, who did those GPS episodes with yeah. us, I sent this to him because I found this, and I'll send it to you, and I'll actually, I'll post it on the Facebook page this week. It's a it's an audience shot thing from the upper deck of Tiger Stadium. It's yeah. like it's like nosebleed section. But it's the perfect vantage point to watch the intro to the show because you see the entire audience from this vantage point and you see the intro. And when that guy goes, the hottest band in the world, Kiss, and that curtain drops for Deuce, it is like – I get goosebumps talking about it, but you have to watch this video. The whole crowd just goes ape shit. I suppose. I mean, it's a straight up roar. I mean, how many people from all over the world? Oh yeah, you know the moment they found out. I mean, I think that show sold out in record time. It was like twenty minutes or something. Yeah, yeah, like minutes. And it was like I think that's like fifty thousand seats or something crazy. And but yeah, if you watch that video, even if you just watch the beginning and produce, it's just. Because you, I mean, they look like stick figures on stage, but just seeing the whole crowd just go insane is like, wow. I mean, That's you'll awesome. get a little, and I can only imagine. I'm sure some of you listening were actually there, yeah. and if you were, share it with us because we wanted to live it through you. But just, or even just other, to see that, even other stops on that tour where yeah. you were seeing Kiss reunited for the first I, time, yeah. I'll never forget it at the Bradley Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Yeah, 
I got I got actually I take that back. The first here. the first yeah. one I seen him at was in the Twin Cities. Oh really? In Minneapolis. Second time I seen him on the reunion was uh, in Milwaukee. I bet you and Baco were at the same show. Though. I'm sure we probably were. That's cool. Yeah. But so I want to play something out with something to kind of celebrate the Kiss reunion. Which well, this is funny because they in in preparation for that tour they put out you wanted the best you got the best which was a compilation of uh, a live one and a live two. And some big air quotes, unreleased songs from the seventies. I never uh, knew till today. Oh, I knew right away. Uh, you didn't know till today. No, I didn't until I was you. Kinda, oh, really? Yeah. No. Nope. Right. I never knew about this rumor. I didn't know it was true. Well, it, and when this came out, it mostly received negative reviews as a cash grab, and it is. But it's a right. cool, but it's a cool cash grab. But it was great because it was unreleased live era music well, from the original band, right? I mean, no. songs that were supposed to be included on Kiss Alive and Kiss Alive Two that that were left out because there wasn't room for them. The original versions of these songs. How cool is that? Well, there's debate. Um, but I mean, well, the vocal. There's no way that the vocals were recorded in the seventies. Yeah, you listen to him, you can tell that that's nineties era Paul and Gene. I just thought maybe it was polished up with today's. No, you know, no, those are total re-recorded vocals. Mixologists. Yeah, but Paul's voice changed a lot from the seventies to now. Right, and Gene was doing all that Cookie Monster shit back in the seventies. It yeah. would have sounded different. And that, so the vocals, I'm sure, are changed. The drums. Uh, I don't know. That sounds a lot more like Eric Singer than Peter Chris to me. Yeah. And then um, Bruce Kulig did confirm that he recorded some stuff for this album. Well, what else would he have recorded on? Right. It certainly wasn't the tracks from Alive 1 and Alive 2. No. So I think it's the Revenge lineup recording all these songs. Wow. I think they may have pretty, taken tapes. Pretty damn and, cool nonetheless. I think they may have done overdubs on original tapes yeah. to try to keep the original feel. Right. But, I st- but I'm saying all this, but I still love all all the tracks. I think it's great. And like a lot of people gave them shit for the, the interview with Jay Leno at the end. I loved that. I thought it was yeah. great to hear them talking and it was cracking cool up the first with time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's something you don't listen to rep- repeatedly. Right. But it was cool. Like, I remember... You know, being all caught up in the reunion fever and listening to that, going, for sure. it's amazing." Yeah, and I bought the vinyl for this. And they came. don't hate each other. It's this might actually work, right? Yeah. Oh, we all bought into that at the time, but yeah, if only we could get to '96 and then just freeze time. Yeah, but uh, I just want to stay in '96. Yeah, but off of, uh, but you wanted the best. You got the best. It's a fun little thing to have from from that era. And if you were around at the time buying music, it was exciting to buy it. Yep, I bought it. So this is one of the quote-unquote unreleased tracks from You Wanted the Best. That's the end of 1996, Year Interview Part 1. This is Let Me Know, and we'll see you next week. See ya. Let me, let me, let me be-